Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. We have a first here on the Mind Body Green podcast, a father and son duo who are both doctors. Let's start with dad by seniority. Let's start with Dr. David Perlmutter. He's a board certified neurologist and fellow of the American College of Nutrition. He's a frequent lecturer at institutions including the World Bank, Columbia, NYU, Yale, Harvard, and serves an associate professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. He's a recipient of numerous awards, and you probably all know him from his runaway best-selling book, Grain Brain. Now, he's joined by his son, also a doctor, Dr. Austin Perlmutter, a board-certified internal medicine physician. He received his medical degree from the University of Miami and completed his internal medicine residency at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. His academic interests center on studying the effects of burnout and depression, as well as preventative care and chronic disease management. Together, they've put out an incredible must-read book, Brainwash. Welcome, the Perlmutters, Austin and David. The do- what's, the, what's the correct plural for, is it the doctors, Perlmutters? Yes. What, okay. Awesome to have you here, guys. Thanks for having us. So congrats on this incredible new book, Brainwash. Love the title. Love everything in the book and how you've taken it to the next level in terms of uh, creating some real solutions for so many of the ales that we're played with today. So... Let's start there. Why brainwash? Oh, who's going first? Uh, uh, so brainwash is the product of a conversation that Austin and I had uh, 18 months or two years ago, I guess it was by now, where we were sitting with our feet up talking about why it is that we do the very best that we can to gain as much information as possible, read the journals, go to the conferences, learn as much as we can. Then we do our very best to transmit that information to people, whether it's patients or in lectures or outreach, media outreach. And then how many people follow through? So we realized that there's a a drop of the ball that happens in terms of people being able to execute on information. We don't suffer from a paucity of information these days. We get plenty of information. But all that information, whether you get it on Mind Body Green or wherever you get it, is not going to help you unless you implement, unless you take advantage of what you've learned and then put it into play. So we began researching how we make our decisions. And we learned quickly that good decision-making that thinks about the future, that isn't just impulsive right now, I want to eat the jelly donut, but thinks about what my health is going to be like in 10 years, and well beyond health, what will my financial situation be, et cetera. Forward-thinking decision-making depends upon being connected to an area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. And that so much in our current lives, our current experiences, are keeping us away from connecting to the prefrontal cortex and locking us into more impulsive decision-making. So that's the disconnection syndrome that we talk about in the book. So like good doctors, you're going to the root cause of the things that are you know, not helping us make the best decisions. It's true. And uh, you know, we realize that our decision-making 
plays the number one role in the biggest problems health-wise that are uh, affecting the planet today. The chronic degenerative conditions are by and large lifestyle related. If that were not the case, if they were genetic, they would have not suddenly appeared like they have. The, the uh, cancer and coronary artery disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes, these are by and large related to the choices that we make. Therefore, Austin and I decided, let's look at this process of making choices of our decision making and realize that uh, our lifestyle choices affect that process, how much sleep we get, whether we're exposed to nature or not, exercise, food, uh, meditation, relationships, digital experiences can take us away from the ability to make good choices in the first place and therefore continue to foster bad decision making or not. And it's interesting you say in the book that lifestyle interventions don't really work. Yeah, this is something that I've seen so many times in my clinical practice. It's a patient comes in and we talk about their problem. That might be their blood pressure is going up a little bit, their blood sugar is going up a little bit, they are a little overweight and they want to lose that weight. And we talk through what is known to help, meaning changing diet, meaning exercising a bit. Patient says, I agree, sounds like a good plan. I say, wonderful but then they don't follow through. And this isn't something that it's just me. We know that about 50% of the time, patients don't follow through on the plan. So there are kind of two options there. One is we blame the patient. And I think that's what happens a lot of the time is we did our part as the doctor, the patient didn't follow through. And the other one, which is the better option, is to ask why. Why is the patient not able to follow through on those decisions? And what we talk about in the book is we're missing a big part of the puzzle, and that is, how is the brain set up to either let us follow through on good decisions or lock us into poor choices and make it harder for us to reach our goals? So one of the other things you talk about in the book, I love, I love the language you use, the disconnection syndrome. Could you explain what that is and what's driving it? Sure. At a very basic level, disconnection syndrome means that we're disconnected from sustainable health and from sustainable well-being, from happiness. And it kind of happens on a variety of levels. It happens when we're disconnected from our genes, from our genetic expression in its optimal way. It happens when we're disconnected from our choices. It happens when we're disconnected from each other. And at the largest level, it happens when we're disconnected from the planet. We talk about this very real disconnection in the brain as kind of the fundamental part of this, which is a disconnection between the prefrontal cortex, which is the adult, the ability of the brain to make good and bad choices really relies on that prefrontal cortex. It's disconnected from other parts of the brain that keep us impulsive, that keep our decision making more based in an instant gratification model. And so we talk throughout the book about strategies that the reader can use to start reconnecting to that prefrontal cortex. And when they do so, through a variety of strategies, that's going to improve their overall quality of life through decision-making. We also talk about strategies that will connect the reader back to the larger environment. So things like empathy, things like having a connection to the planet that are so important for our own health, but also for the fate of the world. And, and let me amplify a couple of things. This is the same part of the brain, this prefrontal cortex, that allows us to be empathetic that allows us to plan for the future, that allows us to think about what the world might look like from another person's perspective. And 
we sure need that these days when we're uh, polarizing ourselves more and more every single day. And, you know, to get back to what Austin was talking about earlier, this idea of, and you brought it up too, Jason, that we kind of blame patients for not following through. And, uh, you know, this is about the recognition that the deck is stacked against the patient and it's stacked against each and every one of us because our decision-making process has been hacked by our modern world. And the first part of the book calls that out. It calls out how our digital or online experiences are taking us closer to more impulsivity. How the modern diet, by virtue of its inflammatory nature, is making us more impulsive, taking us away from this connection, as it will, fostering disconnection syndrome. How the simple uh, idea of not getting a good night's restorative sleep makes you more impulsive, less forward thinking the very next day. So really, you know, this idea that we as doctors uh, are blaming our patients goes further because a lot of people are walking around with self-blame, pointing fingers at themselves saying, darn it, I bought that book. It was a great book, but I just not following through. Whether it's something they read on MBG or my book or who knows whose book, great information's out there, but looking themselves in the mirror and really being, you know, very ticked that they can't follow through. Now recognizing that the deck is actually very strongly stacked against each and every one of us by people who want to harvest our attention. I'll chime in on that too. If you think about self-help in the United States, which is about a $10 billion a year industry, we've all got the books on our shelves. We've all got the podcast downloaded. The information is there. The problem isn't necessarily the information anymore. It's putting it into action. And we've kind of said the reason people aren't having these good choices is because they have a lack of willpower or a lack of information. And so we say, build your willpower. And if you don't have it, that's kind of your fault. Learn the information. And if you don't follow through, well, you need more information. But what we're talking about here is if your brain isn't working, if your decision-making engine has been compromised, all the information in the world is going to do you no good. So all those books sitting on your shelf by these wonderful authors containing wonderful information they're meaningless unless you build a brain that allows you to follow through. And that's really what we're talking about. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said the deck is stacked against us. And I think about instant gratification. Wow. There's a lot to overcome as an individual in this day and age, when, whether it's texting or ordering. You know, it, It's amazing that if I need diapers and go to Amazon Prime and get them in like now, Sure. And tomorrow's too late. Too and, late. Uh, you know, we are absolutely not against technology. Yeah. If it weren't for the, the the wonders of technology, we wouldn't be able to sit here this at this moment and get this information out. We wrote the book by having access to an unlimited resource of of information via mm-hmm. the internet. But it's the mindless aspect of it. Not only the mindless aspect of it, but more uh, worrisome is how our online experiences are cultivated to manipulate our decision making. Uh, you know, you went online with a purpose to buy those diapers. You hopefully accomplished that task <laughs> for, for my daughter. For your daughter, Not for me. Well, whatever the time may come, you never know. But having said that, that was your mission, and so we've developed this uh, acronym called the Test of Time. T-I-M-E, as it relates to your digital experience. T, how much time are you willing to expend during the task? I, is it intentional? What is your goal to accomplish while you're online? M, are you mindful while you are online uh, that 
do you want to stay on task that things aren't popping up to take you away down rabbit holes of mindlessness and finally e was it ultimately a positive enriching uh, experience and we know that uh, you know what goes on online how our attention is being manipulated and basically sold to the highest bidder how destructive that is for our brain wiring how it enhances our impulsivity and fosters disconnection syndrome you know, we, I talk about this a lot. You know, look, I think you talk to any expert, they'll talk about the power of, you know, being alone uh, or, on the flip side, being with others and the importance of emotional connection. And what always comes to mind for me is I'm 45 and I remember going out to eat in the late 90s, early 2000s solo or with friends and if I was solo, I'd go to a restaurant, I'd go to the bar. You know, I probably, well, I definitely drank way too much back then. But, you know, you, you strike up a conversation, you connect with people. And then when I go out with friends, you go to the table and, you know, you order, you order drinks, then you talk to each other. And you fast forward to today, what I call the space in between, between like ordering and food. It's like you look around, if you go to a solo, you're on your phone, you're texting, you're with friends, everyone's got the phone on the table, boom, you order. It, it just, it, it's gone. That's right. And we are suffering because of that. I mean, this thing called social media is anything but. Uh, it breeds isolation and it, it, it fosters disconnection. And we desperately need for our health and for your health and for the health of our communities and planet, we need to re-engage with each other and we re need to re-engage with our current selves and our future selves. And we are being distanced from that. Yeah. And I think that the barrier to entry to going on your phone is so low. Yes. It's if you're sitting there thinking about going out, meeting with friends uh, at a restaurant, at a bar, you could do that. It'll take some planning. It'll take some communication. Or you could just open your phone and go on social media and you're done. <laughs> so that's a big problem. And the other thing, in reference to what my dad was talking about, we know that our smartphones change our interactions. They've done studies where they take two strangers, put them in chairs next to each other, and then put a phone nearby, not even one of their phones. And it shows that there's a lower quality of interaction when these strangers talk. They feel less empathy. So that's somebody else's phone. Think about what it's like if it's your phone that sits there on the table that's pinging while you're trying to have a meal with a friend. So can you, can you talk about what's going on in the brain when someone's pinging you, whether it's a, a bad text or a good text? Like what, what's, what's happening? What's the effect in the brain if, I, if there's a positive response, like a, a good text or a like or a comment versus you know, one of those texts you're like, oh. There, you've just asked, uh, there's a lot in that, <laughs> in that response. First of all, uh, people basically live for the likes. The like is a sudden uh, dopamine hit, and you want more of it. So you know, you're basically uh, putting yourself out there hoping for more and more likes. And there are uh, measurable functional MRI changes that happen uh, in the brain when we uh, are receiving likes or we are looking at even looking at an image that has been liked a lot. There are changes that are demonstrable on MRI scans of your brain if you're looking at an image that has been liked a lot or one that has not been liked a lot. A, B, we don't multitask. We just rapidly shift between tasks. We devote our attention either to me answering your question right now, oh, oh, I just got a text. So we're rapidly shifting between uh, tasks. The notion of the, of the human being able to actually 
float many tasks at the same time, having multiple systems operative in the background, is not really in, uh, in line with current understandings of neurophysiology. So there's a lot that, that's going on there, but a, a much that's happening with respect to the first thing we talked about, this likes versus um, not paying attention to that, really has to do with our gratification and our sense of wanting to be validated extrinsically. And, uh, you know, people need that. They thrive on that. And it's that versus trying to just be in the moment. You know, if we're here by ourselves, you just ended up at the bar or wherever it is. As Austin said, first thing that happens, you have to be on your phone. Why? Because it's either you want to deal with something that's all happened in the past or you're planning to meet somebody at 9.30 tonight. That's in the future. You can't really be in the present. That's what meditation is all about. It's about gently and lovingly pushing away the idea of, oh, I got this email this morning, or tonight I'm supposed to do whatever it is, and being mindful of the moment. And we know that that is a powerful way of reconnecting, taking us back to our original question that you asked, reconnecting to that part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. Being in the present powerfully reconnects us to the prefrontal cortex. Again, the area that allows for better decision-making and the area that fosters human empathy. So how do we develop that prefrontal cortex? That's a great question. It's kind of one of the central themes in this book. And we look at really two things. One is you want to have an active prefrontal cortex. That's key. Because when you activate certain parts of the prefrontal cortex, that gives you better decision-making. But the other thing is you want to have the prefrontal cortex connected in circuits with parts of the brain like the amygdala and the reward circuit because no part of the brain exists in isolation. There has to be communication. There has to be connection. So what we talk about in the book is what strategies are evidence-based to allow people to improve their prefrontal cortex function as well as to integrate that prefrontal cortex with other parts of the brain. We talk about things like sleep. We know that when you get more sleep, that prefrontal cortex is going to be more active and it's going to be more firmly integrated with the amygdala. And you can see that after one night of sleep deficit, the amygdala is more active and the prefrontal cortex amygdala connection is less. We also talk about lowering chronic stress. Chronic stress not only disconnects the amygdala from the prefrontal cortex, but it's toxic to the neurons in the prefrontal cortex. In humans, we know that Periods of long stress are associated with a smaller prefrontal cortex. In animal studies, they've shown that it actually shrinks the neurons in the prefrontal cortex when animals are exposed to chronic stress. So really an emphasis on lowering chronic stress in your life. And then we talk about how do you do that, right? Because it's, <laughs> it's easy enough to say, have less stress. Right. So we talk about... It's the best thing to say to someone <laughs> when they're stressed out. Just don't, you know, have less don't stress. stress. Don't stress. Don't sweat what the small What do you mean, stuff? don't stress? <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. It's a great point. And I think that, I mean, a couple of years ago during my medical training, if people would have said, oh, don't be so stressed, you'd say, okay, great. I'm working 80 plus hours yeah. a week. That sounds wonderful. Um, <laughs> but we talk about things that people know about how meditation and mindfulness can lower levels of stress. We talk about how exercise can actually be a stress mitigation tool. And then we talk about some of the more recent and, and exciting stuff about how nature can actually be used to lower levels of stress. We know that going out into nature, even in an urban setting, for 20 or so minutes at a time, lowers levels of the stress hormone cortisol. So again, we're, we're trying to come up with what are all the interventions people can use to lower levels of chronic stress they may not know about to give them a, a menu so they can choose what is viable for them. 
And then the other big thing we talk about as it relates to the prefrontal cortex is inflammation. And listeners will know that inflammation is a popular topic. We're always talking about lowering inflammation. I know in my training, I learned that chronic inflammation was a contributor to all sorts of diseases. We talk about chronic inflammation for heart disease. We talk about chronic inflammation for autoimmune conditions. We talk about chronic inflammation for dementia. And so there, maybe there's something interesting. We know that chronic inflammation seems to lead to long-term decreases in our brain function. But what we talk about in Brainwash, which is absolutely fascinating and only recently has come out in the research, is that inflammation changes our thinking kind of right away. It doesn't require years of exposure. When scientists induce inflammation, people start feeling depressed. And that's kind of in the last 10 years, they've been able to show that depression itself may be caused by inflammation. Some depression may be caused by inflammation. When you give people things that increase inflammation in their bodies, they immediately experience all the symptoms of depression. But then the most recent research shows that when you induce inflammation in volunteers, their decision-making is compromised. They start looking at the world from a present-focused, instant gratification model as opposed to a long-term oriented thinking style. So what does that mean? If you're doing things in your life that are increasing inflammation, that's going to shift your thinking towards this instant gratification, quick fix model, which will then lead you to do more of those behaviors that increase inflammation. So again, that quick fix, short-term thinking is the exact opposite of what the prefrontal cortex should be doing. So that inflammation is dissociating your prefrontal abilities. And it really is such a powerful reframing of this concept of inflammation. Again, we've all talked about inflammation and chronic inflammation being this thing we need to avoid. But what we're talking about is even acute inflammation, compromising your ability to make good decisions, which therefore will lead to the chronic inflammation that creates all of these bigger problems. So kind of a change in the thought paradigm and something I think people really need to understand. Well, we also tend to think of inflammation a lot as something that's related to food and, and poor nutrition choices, which you guys talk about, mm -hmm. but you're also talking about something much bigger that's driving inflammation. It's not related to diet. Well, good point. Uh, but I, I just want to amplify on, on what Austin was saying. And that is really important that you get your arms around this fact that there are multiple on-ramps here to this pro feed forward process. That Inflammation might be augmented by your poor sleep quality, by your dietary choices, by your lack of exercise, by the level of stress in your life. However you get there, it tends to compromise your decision-making that leads you to make more impulsive decisions that continue then to foster inflammation. So this is a dramatic feed-forward process, getting worse and worse with time. And what we are offering is an off-ramp from this crazy carousel. And that is, it doesn't matter whether you think you want to emphasize getting a better night's sleep or make a dietary change or f finally engage in some exercise or maybe I'll try this meditation thing I've been hearing so much about lately. However you want to uh, engage this reconnection will then foster slightly better decision-making and making bringing on other aspects of the program much more likely because now you've started to reconnect your prefrontal cortex and the light starts to shine and you begin to gain more and more ability to make better and better decisions 
And that's why there are multiple on-ramps to, to regaining control, to reconnecting, if you will, to offsetting disconnection syndrome. You know, as you were talking, it made me think about when I first started practicing yoga and how it was such a gateway drug for me. I started to, you know, I practiced a little slower vinyasa, so I started to, you know, slow down a bit more, start to become more in tune with my body, started to make better decisions. I would say, like, most people don't start to fall in love with yoga and then go to Burger King even though they have an impossible burger now, uh, after you start making better choices, you start eating better, you start being more mindful of your connections, it sort of spills over. And it goes back to this idea of what do I personally, what I think yoga is so powerful is you start to slow down. Mm-hmm. We're in this, we live in a culture, a society, that everything's speed, fast, instant. And yoga, you know, for some types of yoga, you're slowing, you're being a little more mindful, you're listening to your body. And we need that. That's for sure. That's all about being in the moment. Yes. So it's, it is meditative. And as such, it is allowing better connection to the prefrontal cortex and therefore better control over the impulsivity parts of the brain, including the amygdala. The, the prefrontal cortex is the adult in the room. <laughs> it, it really is. And as such, um, you know, when the amygdala is left to its own devices, it is basically... Uh, you know, you left your kids at home yeah. for the weekend with 30 of their closest friends and you Keys and your the wife. car and a bottle of Jack Daniels. Right. And, and yeah. you're out going off on a cruise. Yeah. How's that going to end up? And so it really is about bringing the adult back into the room to allow more measured, thoughtful decisions moving forward. And as opposed to impulsivity, narcissism uh, and this us versus them mentality that is specifically involved in amygdala-based activity. And us versus them mentality. Let me take this a little further. We recognize that disconnection from the prefrontal cortex and the unbridled activity of this us versus them mentality happens in the presence of inflammation that can be brought about, for example, by uh, a pro-inflammatory diet i.e. the modern Western diet that's becoming the global diet. So in a very real sense, what we're saying is that the global shift in dietary uh, ideas, ideology, is really distancing us from being in touch with the prefrontal cortex on a global scale, fostering impulsive decisions globally and more of an us versus them mentality across our planet. Uh, And we see it happening. Uh, We see the manifestations of this when we read the newspaper. Uh, We see, uh, you know, a lack of uh, wanting to embrace the fact that there are changes happening on our planet, that human activity uh, is involved with those changes. That's concentrating on thinking only for today, taking more fossil fuels out of the earth, burning those fossil fuels, come what may, and, you know, tomorrow's uh, environment be damned. Uh, I mean, nothing is more graphic, I think, than as the time, at this time when we're doing this recording, the fires that are happening in Australia, and yet a, uh, at least segment of the population wanting to deny that there are any changes in the climate that are even occurring, much less the fact that we humans may be responsible for that. That's short-term thinking. Long-term thinking embraces this idea that what we do today will play out tomorrow. Uh, and tomorrow could be 10 years from now. Tomorrow is the world we're gifting to our children and their children and all to come. It's bigger picture thinking. Yeah, you have a great chart in the book on, on news consumption over the years. and It's not a good chart. And <laughs> <laughs> it's not. A, I mean, 
you know, uh, what is it? Blood, uh, blood is what sells. There's a, a term for that, but you know, people are far more attracted to negative information and uh, what the chart the confirmation bias. And yeah, all, uh, well, uh, negativity yeah, bias. Yeah. Uh, but you know, that chart demonstrates, l- looking at uh, global news, how negative it has become, and we know how popular that is. You know, uh, if you turn the news off, believe it or not, the world c- continues, and you're a better person for for not being engaged with that on a daily basis. When you look at major causes of stress, what Americans identify, uh, what was it, 40% or so? And, so? and people who have higher levels of stress, 40% say the news is a big cause. I'm like, how can it not be? Right. <laughs> you just turn on the news to yeah. see what happens. How do you feel? Yeah. So in terms of solutions, things we can do, you talked about nature, getting outside for 20 minutes, urban or rural environment doesn't seem to just get out there, get in nature. You also mentioned sleep and exercise. I'm curious in terms of both sleep and exercise, what are the minimums you're seeing? Well, I'll take sleep. Um, There's been some debate in the years as to how much sleep you actually need, but the consensus seems to be seven hours for an adult starting at seven and and going up maybe towards eight. And I think what's perhaps even more important than having that ballpark number is knowing the quality of your sleep. So a lot of us get in bed and we say, well, now my sleep timer started. But meanwhile, we're scrolling through social media. (laughs) Uh, We're checking that last email. Um, And then maybe we have trouble with something like sleep apnea. And so the actual quality of the sleep is not very good. So one of the things we talk about in the book is how do you know about the quality of your sleep? And that might mean getting a formal sleep study. We also know that a lot of people turn to sleep aids, medications to help them sleep. And what we know about those is they may not be helping your quality either. On the other hand, they may actually be leading to significant health consequences. So what we're talking about in the book is how do you set yourself up for success with sleep? One of those things is knowing the amount of time you need to dedicate to it. And that's saying Give yourself at least seven hours of quality sleep opportunity each night. But then if you're not feeling rested, or perhaps if your partner says you snore, that's when it's time to go and maybe see a specialist about it. And what about exercise? Let me amplify a couple of things Austin said. I think he got the easier question because (laughs) the data on exercise is a little bit more difficult to interpret. Uh, Because people, you know, go into the laboratory and they study their sleep. You know, Matthew Walker wrote a wonderful book about it. Um, And I would say people should get a sense as to the quality of their sleep, maybe with a wearable device or going, as Austin said, to a sleep lab. I think it's uh, extremely important to determine not just the length of time that you sleep, uh, but the quality of that sleep. And having said that, uh, lack of restorative sleep is immediately translated into impulsivity the very next day. We all know that. We all know that our food choices the next day are compromised. And it's been demonstrated that, uh, you know, continuous issues with sleep quality and duration are associated with as much as a 380 calorie increase consumption daily without a, uh, an increase in energy expenditure. So you're net positive 380 calories a day, and it's only 3,500 calories to equal one pound of body fat. So this worsens your issues with respect to overweight and obesity, which does what? further compromises your sleep. That's yet another vicious cycle. As it relates to uh, exercise, 
it, it's a little bit more all over the, the spectrum. We can extrapolate a bit from the exercise uh, studies that deal with the brain in particular and look at the benefits of uh, exercise in terms of increasing a chemical that's really good for the brain called BDNF. And that research seems to show that 140 minutes of exercise weekly, in uh, which is aerobic, in contrast to just doing a stretching program, is associated with a robust increase in the chemical that leads to a better brain. We know that uh, exercise is associated uh, long-term with reductions in stress hormone cortisol, which is threatening in terms of disconnection syndrome and threatening to the brain. And in addition, is a wonderful way to help downregulate this process, fundamental process of inflammation. There are other aspects in terms of creating the endorphins, the feel-good chemicals, which is feed-forward. That tends to reinforce, uh, you know, this idea that you want to exercise. So Isaac Newton said, uh, not necessarily as it relates to exercise, but a body in motion tends to remain in motion. And what does it mean vis-a-vis this conversation? It means that if you get into motion, you start exercising, your decision-making will improve, and you're then much more likely to continue your exercise or remain in motion. So, you know, this is information that Mind Body Green uh, readers have heard in the past, that exercise is good, that we've got to pay attention to our sleep, get out in nature, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But in the context of being able, moving forward, to make better decisions, uh, this is the lens through which this book was written, which is, I think, a very empowering vantage point to look now upon these lifestyle choices i love it and talk about nature i think is so important you touched on earlier the 20 minutes rural urban like what what's happened what's going on in the brain in that experience sure the research on nature i guess before i say that we all kind of know nature is a nice thing i don't think there are people going out and saying wow look at these horrible trees look at those terrible mountains We've kind of known it's a nice thing, that we feel better when we're outside. But in the last several decades, researchers have started to substantiate this with these studies. And a lot of it's been done in Japan. It's a a term they call shinrin-yoku, or forest bathing, as it's translated into English. The idea is that we gain tangible health benefits from just being outside. And what that means to the average person, well, let's look at the, the major benefits we're talking about for brain health. Going out into nature lowers levels of stress. Subjective stress, levels of the stress hormone cortisol, as we mentioned before. Going out into nature also lowers levels of inflammation, which, as we said, is toxic to the brain, both on the short and the long runs. We also know that going out into nature improves well-being. People feel better when they go out into nature, in addition to boosting immunity and a variety of other benefits, one of which is it seems to activate the parasympathetic nervous system and suppress that sympathetic drive. I think that one of the benefits that is easy to overlook but has to be stated is when we're out in nature, we're not in the city. And I think that there is something so stressful about just being in that drive, in the city, being surrounded by air pollution, being surrounded by all of this hustle and bustle. But what we found in the research is that scientists have shown that, as we mentioned before, you don't have to go out into the middle of nowhere to get these benefits. People can benefit from just going out into urban nature, and it doesn't even have to be that challenging. People can benefit, get these same benefits from bringing a plant inside, from buying a plant at the store, 
get a Monstera, whatever is interesting to you, and bring it into your apartment. There's even research suggesting that a photograph of nature will give you some of these benefits. So it doesn't have to be this incredibly comprehensive model of going to the national park. We just need a little nature in our lives. It helps to offset stress, it helps to offset inflammation, and it improves our well-being. I love it. It doesn't cost anything either. No, and and from a uh, a functional perspective, uh, even demonstrating um, individuals, giving them a photograph of a natural environment versus an urban environment, immediately translates into uh, impulsivity versus non-impulsivity in terms of choices. Right away, and, and with changes observed on functional MRI scanning, just looking at a picture of a forest versus a picture of an urban environment, that's uh, you know, a pretty amazing and direct uh, realization that what we look at plays a huge role. Now, uh, when we're in nature, as Austin mentioned, we, all, we, we feel pretty good. We know that. But the, the science is really trying to uh, take that apart in a more granular way in terms of what are the specific uh, messengers that are happening, why do we feel better, and you know, certainly some of the uh, uh, oils that are found in trees that we smell, these phytoncides have a role in balancing our immune system, as Austin mentioned, reducing stress as well. And you know, the, the take-home point, again, it doesn't have to be you have to visit Yellowstone or, <laughs> uh, every other week. It could be a plant in your office, on your desk, in the kitchen, wherever it may be. But, you know, when you recognize that 87% of, of, uh, our, of our time is spent as Americans indoors with another 6% uh, in our cars, it doesn't leave... 87%. 87%. I'm plus, just doing the math. It's like, okay, you take out nighttime sleep. That's still proof. Yep, and it doesn't leave a lot of time for that, therefore, that connection. And let me say one more thing about that. I think that a fallacy I fell into early on is that if you're out in nature, you're not being productive. You're better served being inside on your computer. That's how you're going to get ahead in life. And there's two things that the research has shown me that I think are take-home points, specifically if you're listening to this in New York or another big city. One is people are more creative when they spend time outside. So if you want new ideas for your company, whatever it might be, This is an intervention to increase creativity. The other is your focus is better when you spend time around plants and outdoors. It's something called attention restoration theory. It's the idea that you're giving your brain a break when you're looking at it to these natural elements, and then it allows you to regain your focus when you go back to whatever it is you need to do. So if you're feeling stuck at work, if you're trying to get ahead, even if you just want to make good financial decisions, getting outside is an intervention to improve that. Again, it's kind of counterintuitive. You'd think, if I want to get ahead, I need to do the actual work. But you come in refreshed, you come in creative, and that's going to give you a major boost. Yeah, we live in a society where you're told to burn the midnight oil, right? Get up really early, stay up late, and and get that work done. And uh, just like Austin said with reference to nature, sleep. You know, the more sleep, the better sleep that you get, uh, the more creativity and productive you will then be. So the notion of trying to get ahead by staying up late is actually ultimately as well counterproductive. So I guess in our, if, if I were to, 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 to summarize in our perfect world, we would go for a steep incline hike for 20 minutes with some form of nature and be mindful of each step we're taking and the environment we're in if we can do that, that and have be, other people with other, you say, and other people with you you know and and you know i know you're being uh, it's a bit hyperbolic but what's wrong with that 
You know, what's wrong with planning to do that once a week? Get with a couple of friends and go for a hike. Go outside and walk around. Uh, you accomplish three things, nature exposure, your relationship mm-hmm. issues, and the exercise part. I'm just going with the bang for the buck, knowing we have a busy audience. A lot of people are working. They you don't bet. have time, you family. So it's like, how do we get everything in at once? Exactly right. This is about the offsets. It's about how do I offset the fact that I have to be in front of my screen. It's part of my job. How do I offset the fact that I have to commute, uh, that I have uh, X amount of stress in my life, that I may not get as much restorative sleep? Uh, How do I offset that? Well, you look at what, as I mentioned before, what are your uh, entry ramps? And those include, well, I can at least tweak my diet a little bit. I could put that plant on my desk. I can spend 20 minutes and meditate or 10 minutes or 12 minutes, whatever it may be. And I can do my very best to engage in exercise. However you want to, you know, offset those challenges. We all have those challenges. We live in the modern world. And again, we're not anti-technology. Technology is great. But to recognize what is happening with our digital experiences, the confrontations that are designed, we all know that they are designed to harvest our attention day in and day out. Those are profoundly detrimental to your brain wiring. End of story. That's going to compromise your decision making, making you more impulsive and less able to achieve what you probably want to achieve as a human being. And I think job one is to simply be aware of that. And that's why calling it out was so important for us. Something else you mentioned earlier, which I think just makes you a better human being, but is important for your 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 mental and uh, your overall well-being, is being empathetic. The power of empathy. I love that. You do something that's actually good, being a better human, and there are health benefits. It's true. And uh, empathy is usually looked upon as, as doing something to help somebody else or seeing the world through their eyes. But practicing empathy is selfish and there's nothing wrong with that because the Dalai Lama said that uh, if you want others to be happy practice compassion if you want to be happy practice compassion so uh, I I will gain great benefit by acting in a compassionate empathetic way and certainly one would hope that the recipient of my actions will feel benefit from that as well Uh, but understand that is part of disconnection syndrome is getting away from acting empathetically and compassionately and being more narcissistic. Uh, the amygdala plays a role in self-centeredness, in distancing ourselves from others and being only interested in what we post about ourselves and having validation day in and day out uh, in terms of how great and wonderful we are. And the reality is that just fosters isolation and loneliness. And loneliness in and of itself is associated with some significant health issues. Loneliness epidemic right now. That's right. right. Um, About half of Americans say they sometimes or always feel alone. It's pretty sad considering the fact that there are so many people in this country, in this world. You could literally find, uh, you know, here in New York, there are millions of people around you. And yet people still experience this crippling loneliness. And we think empathy is is one of the best interventions to allow people to bridge that gap and to allow people to reach out. So one of the things we talk about is just saying hello and thanking somebody else in the course of a day. It's really so simple to get started with this, but we get into these grooves of isolating ourselves. And it's the exact opposite of what we need to be doing. It's certainly something that I'm not blaming people for because it's kind of how society has set itself up to be now. But it's so much easier to go and 
connect, if you want to call it that, with people on social media than it is to go <laughs> out and talk to somebody at a restaurant. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't reach out and have meaningful connection with people on social media, but there's this very real trap where you open up your browser, you open up your app, and you're kind of shuttled into these silos where you're only talking with people who believe exactly what you believe. And so we see that even in politics, people are more divided now than ever. And we've got to just ask the objective question of, is this doing well for us? Are we benefiting from this division? Are we actually gaining anything from it? Or are we just digging in our heels so that we can support our own ideology? And so one of the, the core features of empathy, specifically this cognitive empathy, which definitely is essential through the prefrontal cortex, is the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and ask, why might they be thinking what they're thinking? Um, it's something that we've lost, but it's easy to start cultivating again. Just having a conversation with somebody with a different viewpoint is an exercise in empathy. It's so much easier to be a complete ass online than it is one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, there's total anonymity when you're online, Yeah, right? And, uh, or even with someone you know, like writing an email that's like super reactive, whereas like when you're having that interaction one-on-one, -on -one, it's so much more difficult. Yeah, and I think writing those emails uh, might be a good way for you to feel ventilated that you, you got out your opinion. Just don't send it. Right. Just write it, and then you said what you wanted to say, but don't send it. But uh, to, to Austin's point that you know, we tend to gravitate to those social media sites that are in line with our thinking. And what does that do? It stifles our ability to learn and grow that we would otherwise have gotten from engaging in other people's uh, ideas. And that is what he referred to as cognitive empathy, to see the world through another person's eyes. Maybe there are people who believe the earth is flat. I have a tough time with that one, but I'm at least wanting to hear the argument and where it's coming from. And uh, that's, you know, obviously an extreme example, but, uh, you know, we talk about uh, politicians going to run for this and that and say, I'm going to reach across the aisle, bridge the aisle, and, you know, whether uh, I'm a Democrat or Republican, I'm going to reach across the aisle. Why don't we get rid of the aisle? They, they got really short, short arms. Yeah, but why don't we just, you know, these days when you go to a wedding, these days you go to a wedding, there's not usually any more, although I'm sure there's some, there's not a bride's side and a groom's side. Usually people just sit. And they talk to people from the, someone's family, and we flew down for the wedding from whatever. I believe that would be a great thing. Uh, I'm not trying to be political here, but if we just assigned your seats in the House of Representatives based on your, your alph alphabetized alphabet. them, then you've got a Democrat next to Republican next to an Independent, and you have to talk face-to-face -face instead of d dividing, uh, being divisive and driving your heels into the ground. This is it. End of story. I think one more point on that. When you think about the quality of the news, when you think about what you're exposed to on social media and the fact that there's so much negativity and there's so many targeted uh, pieces of content to induce stress, and what does that do when you induce stress, when you induce the fear response? It shrinks your world. You don't have the capacity to look out and say, what am I missing here? You're in fight or flight. You have a narrow spotlight on how do I survive this? And that makes you unable to as my dad said, reach across the aisle because you're focused on getting through the day. So we've got to be aware that there's so much negativity out there and it's not just entertaining. It is literally changing our brain wiring to make us less likely to see the bigger picture and to really live lives that are better for us. 
So what are some of the easy wins, if you will? Someone's listening, they're like, okay, I need to make some changes, but this is going to be tough for me because I have so many changes. And I think anytime you are making changes in your life, it's nice to get build a little momentum, easy wins. I can do this one little thing. Like, What are those easy wins that anyone, no matter how how much how much change you need to make you know what's easy must 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 can do every day sure and this is not uh this is not binary it's not all or none Uh, i mentioned before that there are multiple on ramps and i think one of the most underrated and possibly the easiest on ramp is to look at the quality of your sleep the duration and quality of your sleep now that might be wearing an aura ring Uh, or getting a full-blown polysomnogram at a doctor's office and determining the quality and length of sleep. But I think people don't realize that it's not just the length of time that you think you are sleeping, but what's the dynamics of sleep? What stages of sleep are you deficient in? Are you getting enough REM sleep? Are you getting enough deep sleep? The time when our glymphatic system is activated to help clean the, virtually take the garbage out, shampoo the brain, brainwash, What a term, (laughs) as it were. You don't know that unless you're having some sort of way of assessing that, and and there are many things that one can do. Uh, I think, by and large, people will be surprised when they finally learn about that, and that might well be simple, to limit your blue light exposure in the evenings, uh, to limit your caffeine consumption after 2 p.m., having virtually no caffeine after 2 p.m., timing of exercise during the course of the day, doing something called time-restricted eating, where you're not eating right up until the moment you go to sleep, where sleep is doing one thing for your body and you're not then diverted to digestion. That's something that's maybe going to happen earlier. So I think Austin will have comments for other ideas, but I think that's a very underrated and powerful on-ramp when you consider that a third of American adults uh, do not get enough restorative sleep. I'm going to go with the tech piece. I agree with my dad in that the sleep is probably the single biggest intervention you can do. Getting a good night of sleep will set you up better than anything else. But when it comes to the the short, uh, I don't want to say quick fixes here because there are no quick fixes. But when it comes to getting some, some steam going, technology. So we talked about the test of time already. But the average American is watching four hours of TV, spending about another two hours a day on their phones. And I would wager most of that time is not productive. It's not adding much to the quality of life. So I think that taking a look at what you're doing with technology is going to be the single best way to say, wow, there is a big difference between what I need to be doing and what I actually am doing. So these interventions you can make, like going through and deleting some apps on your phone that you're no longer using, like setting limits on how long you actually spend on social media, or even just learning how much time you're spending on these apps each day, is going to grant you so much insight into how you can improve. And so we talk about the test of time, but we go through in the book and in the 10-day plan a much more comprehensive way of approaching your digital interactions. I think that any of those interventions will give you that concept of how much progress you can make. And I think for the average person, that's going to create an amazing benefit just in even a couple of minutes of making those changes. I'm all for uh, efficiencies here. So you're talking about sleep. You're talking about technology. No phone. No phone in bed. Turn it off. It sounds sounds so easy, right? But then it somehow <laughs> creeps its way in there. <laughs> yeah, we think that using an alarm clock as opposed to a phone in a room is a great way of removing that one thing that the phone 
tries to convince you it needs to be in the room for. The phone says, well, you know, you don't need me for social media, but you're not going to make it to work unless I go off in the morning. You don't have to have a phone to do that. You can use an alarm clock or you can put the phone in the other room. I mean, and just leave it there for the entirety of the day. But the goal is to start creating more separation between yourself and these addictive technologies so that you can start to rewire your habit loops so that you can start to experience your day-to-day in a way that gives you the opportunity to do the stuff that is meaningful as opposed to what's easy. So we don't have an alarm clock, but as I joke, we have two human alarm clocks in the form of our (laughs) three-year-old and seven-month-old girls, uh, which leads me to my next question. It's something Colleen and I think about a lot. Raising kids in this environment, any advice for parents out there? Yeah, I'd say, uh, first of all, recognize that, you know, we used to consider the brain to be tableau rue, this blank slate upon which life experiences would be written and provide the software, if you will, for the operating system moving forward. And I think, uh, to some degree, it's still a, a bit of a valid kind of a model, but that the window is only open for a relatively short period of time. So what happens early in life really does set the stage in terms of the operating system moving forward for the rest of that individual's life. So when that um, the intervention is uh, offloaded to a digital device, for example, to screen time, which is very, very common I'm seeing these days. I mean, I'm seeing kids in baby carriages being walked around holding a looking at a, an iPad, uh, iPad of one form or another while mom is on the is speaking to or doing FaceTime with somebody there's no interaction there there's no interaction not only with the child and the environment but with mother and child as well and those are powerfully important interactions that are critically uh, involved in building a brain building a better brain for that child to then understand what goes on in the world in a very testable verifiable way uh, versus being linked into dependency upon a digital device. So I think the message would be uh, that the window closes very rapidly and uh, that this degree of neuroplasticity that is present early, early in life uh, is a gift uh, that can be used or abused. And um, I think that would be a very important lesson. And last question, a lot of interesting science right now. I remember a year ago when you were on you talked about this concept. I was like, oh, this is so exciting. I'm so excited for this book. Like, where, what, what's exciting to you guys right now in the world of science in terms of studies? And, and where, do you, where, would you, where do you think the conversation is going to be a year from now? You want to go first? Sure. <laughs> well, getting back to where we started this podcast and the idea that we've focused all of our attention on willpower and information being the primary ways we could influence decisions. And understanding now that we can get to the fundamental architecture of how decisions are made in the brain. We can support a brain for good decisions, or we can leave it to social media and the news to support our brain for poor decisions, to an inflammatory diet, to support it for impulsive thinking. So I think where this goes next is integration into the whole habit model and saying we know habits are an incredibly powerful way of influencing how we create our days. But this is one step upstream of that. And it's saying, if you want to get started with creating better habits, you still need to have that executive function that enables you to say, time to make a change. And what would that look like? So I see this as part of this continuum, which is you have your objectives, your outcomes you care about, whether that's being a healthier person in general, losing some weight, having better relationships, doing better at work. And then you have where you are now. 
And for so long, we've thought that there's this gap that has to be filled by only willpower and only information. Now we're seeing how habits fit into that. But what we're talking about in this book is that there's a step before that, and that is engineering a brain that enables you to make better decisions, enables you to create these better habits. So again, to summarize, I see this integrating into this whole habit paradigm as a continuum of how you go through life, following through on what you care about and reaching your goals. I would have to just go along with Austin's response there. It's very exciting that we're at a place now, suddenly, where it's not about giving out the information. Uh, It's about using the information. It's about changing the mind to be uh, able to act upon that information, to create, as we've done in Brainwash, the bridge between information and action. That's leading-edge science. Uh, It's going to take a little bit of work, I think, for people to get their arms around this idea. It's not like uh, grain brain where you say eat less sugar and you'll lose weight and have better sex or whatever people took away from that book. I don't know. But uh, this is a little bit more complex, but it needs to be because, you know, brain activity, brain, uh, the brain functionality as it relates to decision making is not necessarily an easy topic, but that's where the science is we're in the early stages but the empowering part of the story is that we have the ability right now today to change that wiring and change the brain's functionality so that we can reconnect to the part of the brain that lets us be the people that we really want to be i love it so real last question more of a personal (laughs) question i'm curious so what what What's going so right in the Perlmutter family? You're writing books with Austin. He's an MD. Your daughter, Aracia, is an incredibly talented artist. I'm just curious, you know, from my point of view, a, a really successful, happy, healthy family. What did you do so right? <laughs> that might be the greatest compliment that a parent could ever get. And um, I am blessed by having... Uh, a wife who is uh, understanding and compassionate and forward-thinking and uh, an amazing, amazing teammate for me. And I think early on in our relationship, we recognized what was important for ourselves, uh, for those around us. And that was, I think, the environment that we tried to create for the children that we raised. And, you know, our modern world is very challenging, especially as it relates to raising children. Look at what we're up against. Look what the, uh, you know, what we're competing with. It's hard to compete with what kids are being exposed to these days. But that's what this book's about. And you know, and with the the idea of of connection, for me as a father to be able to connect with my son, our son, to in this project moving forward has been one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. And I think that I conveyed that to you a year ago at the inception of this project. So here we are a year later. And what's your take, Austin? As to how my parents did a good job? Or or just just... in general, what was going on in the family? Did you, you know, scheduled, here as a parent, I'm just super curious. Everyone has theories. I think it's really easy to fall victim to a hindsight bias or whatever and basically say, this is why things worked out the way they did. Um, I'm going to go with the unconditional love piece. I think that's maybe the most fundamental part of it all is to have people who are in your corner and who are going to support you even when you don't support yourself. Um, You know, it's it's a challenging question and it gets to some of those fundamental pieces of what drives us forward. But both of my parents have 
always been understanding, always been there for me. And I think that one thing I'm really lucky to have is this balance um, between my dad and my mom, who don't always share the exact same opinions, but who are kind to each other and walk through that. And seeing how that could exist in their relationship model has been so helpful for me in my relationships, both with my work and with the people in my life. I love that. It's funny. I asked Deepak Chopra a similar question, and it was specifically with with young kids. And he said, under the age of three, unconditional love. That's just love. Just love them. That's it. Don't worry about all the classes and all the stuff you can get caught up here in, in, in New York. Just love. Unconditional love. And then after three? We, we, we stopped at three. I was like, just get me to three. Just get me to three. <laughs> They're on their own. Then it's preschool and we're playing. But, but I love that unconditional love. I love it. Well, congrats on the book, everyone. Another must read. Now from the plural, the doctors, Perlmutters, the dynamic father-son duo, a must read. Brainwash. Pick it up. Thanks, Thank you, guys. Jason. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Congratulations.